Good morning. It's uh, good to be back with all of you um, from Japan. I am severely jet lagged. It's been kind of brutal uh, for me this, this time. I don't know why. Someone says it's because you're old. It's the older you get, the harder they say it is to adjust. So if, if I fall asleep during the message, that's why. It's not because the message is boring, okay? Um, well, today we're picking off where we left off a couple of weeks ago. We've been in this series here called God Inside, which is about the Holy Spirit, about the God who lives inside of us. And I thought I'd begin by just kind of giving you a quick little review of some of the things that we've talked about, some of the things we've learned in the last month or so. And so this will be a good refresher for the, those of you who uh, have been here. And if you're fairly new, this, is, uh, this will be a good kind of starting off point to get you kind of under, get you caught up with what we've been talking about. So and you have a Baywatch. Hopefully you received that when you walked in here today. And inside of your Baywatch um, is a note, a, a sheet with some notes on it, some verses that are listed there for you. Not all the verses that I'm going to be covering today uh, are on that sheet. The incidental verses are not. They'll all be here up on the screen. The primary verses that we're going to be looking at will be on there. You can also open up our South Bay Community Church app. We have an app. You can go to the Apple Store, the Google Store, the Play Store, and download that, and you can follow along there as well. Of course, look at your Bible. That's the main thing, all right? So here's kind of uh, five things that we learned in the last uh, month or so. First, we learned that the Holy Spirit is God. And we'll put all these up here for you. The Holy Spirit is God. These aren't fill-ins. The Holy Spirit is not a force. The Holy Spirit is not an it, but the Holy Spirit is God, and the Holy Spirit is a he. He is a he. Second, we learn that the Holy Spirit is a person. He's not a person in the sense of a human being, but he's a person in the sense that he has a volition and a will, that he has emotions, that he has an intellect. So he is a person. The Holy Spirit is the third person of the Trinity. Uh, the first person of the Trinity is the Father. The second uh, person of the Trinity is the Son. The third person of the Trinity would be the Holy Spirit. And all three persons uh, of, the, of the Trinity are 100% God. 100% God. Father is 100% God. Son is 100% God. The Holy Spirit is 100% God. There aren't three separate gods in the Trinity. Uh, the doctrine of the Trinity uh, doesn't divide God up into threes, where the Father is one-third, the Son is one-third, and the Holy Spirit is one-third. The, the Trinity uh, cannot be illustrated by this mathematical equation right here, one plus one plus one equals three. That would not be an accurate representation of the Trinity, but it would be more appropriate to express the Trinity in this mathematical equation, one times one times one equals one, all right? So that's kind of the Trinity there is a one God in three persons. Third, we learned that the Holy Spirit was sent to live inside of us. He was sent to live inside of us. The Holy Spirit doesn't live in every one of us. The Holy Spirit will live inside of you only if you invite him to. Only when you ask the Holy Spirit to come inside of your life will he enter your life and be a part of your life. Revelation 3.20 says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. And if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. And so the key word here is the word opens. Whoever opens the door of his heart, uh, the Holy Spirit will enter in. You have to open your heart up to God. When you open your heart up to God, then the Holy Spirit will come and live inside of you. In other words, Almighty God will come and live inside of you. And that's why Galatians 4, 6, the ne next verse says, And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of his Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Right? So he sends the Spirit into our hearts to live inside of us. Fourth, we learn that the Holy Spirit empowers us. Pastor James talked about this a couple weeks ago. He lives inside of us to give us power for our daily lives. He gives us power to endure trials. He gives us power to endure temptations. He gives us power to accomplish God's work. He gives us power that our lives might be changed, that we might be different from what we were before we came to know Christ and, and then afterwards. So he changes us. And finally, fifth, we learn that the Holy Spirit illuminates us. He illuminates us. Pastor Greg talked about this. It is because of the work of the Holy Spirit that we even come to know Christ in the first place. And it is because of the work of the Holy Spirit. He illuminates us. We understand the truth of God's word. We believe it to be true and it, it convicts us and speaks to us. And so these are a few things that we've covered in the last month or so about the Holy Spirit. Today, I want to enlighten you further on this subject and tell you what else the Holy Spirit does. There's so much more that he does. And I believe, I really believe that what you learn today will absolutely astound you. It has astounded me. So um, let me pray first and then we'll get started. Okay, well, let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you so much. It is so good to be home. There's no place like home. 
And I, and I thank you so much. Not only do I have a family to come home to, but, but a church family to come home to. And I thank you, God, so much for what you're doing here. And today, God, I ask that you, your Holy Spirit, Father, you, Jesus Christ, would take center stage. You would take center stage here uh, as you speak through me, as you teach through me. And I pray that you would take center stage in our own lives, in our own hearts. And Holy Spirit, I ask that you would speak to us. I ho- I, Holy Spirit, I ask that you would stir in us. I ask that you would enlighten us. I ask that you would illuminate our minds, that we would understand what is being taught and that we would get it and that it would change our lives, that we would have a greater understanding of you. So Father, thank you so much for our time together today. Again, I ask, would you be our teacher? Would you speak to us today? And I ask these things in Jesus' mighty name, amen. Well, as you uh, may know, I just returned home from Japan. Uh, it's been about 10, 11 days now. And, and um, I was there with Matt Sekijima, who is one of our worship leaders. Uh, he lived in Japan for over a year, speaks fluent Japanese. So he was just a tremendous help to me as we navigated the train systems and all these kinds of things. It's very uh, difficult to do that. But one of the places that we visited on our trip was a, an island called Awajishima or Awaji Island, which is here on this map in Japan. It's kind of toward the southern part of Japan. Uh, it is between the main island, which is called Honshu, and the island below that is called Shikoku, but there's that little red dot. There's an island there. It's fairly large. It's the home to 157,000 people. Now, when according to the Shinto religion, which is the primary religion of Japan, uh, there's two primary religions, Shinto and uh, Buddhism, but according to the Shinto religion, the, according to their creation mythology, Awaji Island was one of the first islands that was created or formed by the Shinto gods Azanagi and Azanami. These this illustration here. And of course, we know who really created Awaji Island and the rest of Japan and the entire world for that matter, and that was Almighty God, our Creator God. And so, if you weren't aware, Awaji Island was the, the epicenter of the Kobe earthquake in 1995, which killed 5,000 people. This was the epicenter of that particular earthquake. Now, overlooking the city of Sumoto, which is where we stayed, uh, there's a number, there are a number of cities on the island. We stayed in the city of Sumoto. I believe it's the largest city there. Overlooking the city of Sumoto is a castle which was built in the 1500s. And here's a, a distant view of the castle. And you can see that, that little mountain there. It's very green, but you can see this little uh, something protruding up out of the mountain. And here's a little closer shot of, the, of that. And that's, there's the castle right there. And so it's about, elevation is about 2,000 feet, so you've got to hike up. I think it's, it may be the highest point on the island. I'm not uh, certain of that. But... Uh, that's, that's what the thing looks like. Now, we had a chance uh, to view, uh, on the second day that we were there, we h- actually hiked up to the, to the castle, and it's quite a hike. It's quite a steep climb, actually. And so once we got there, we took a picture of the city. So here's a, a picture of the city of Sumoto from the top right by the castle there. And the reason Matt's mouth is wide open is because he was gasping for air after we got to the top. I was fine, of course. No, I'm kidding. I think it was the other way around. <clears throat> but um, Matt knows a lot about the city because he lived there for a year. Uh, he was there on the jet, through the JET program. And so I want to ask Matt to come out and share a little bit about, um, about Sumoto and about our trip to Japan. So this is Matt Sekijima, everyone. And um, so, so tell us a little bit about, uh, about Sumoto and in the trip. Sure. It's a, it's a great place to hike up the mountain with your senior pastor on your back when you carry him up the mountain. <laughs> it leaves you out of breath. Um, Thanks a lot. You're a pastor, man. You're just spewing. My- All right. So anyway, so it's, uh, it was a great time uh, to be with Pastor Gary um, in Japan, in a country I love, and specifically to take him to a place most people have just never heard of, including many people in Japan. And it was an honor to be able to take you, Pastor Gary, to um, Awaji Island and to Sumoto and to go up to the castle. Um, as you can probably see from the pictures, it's just truly one of the most beautiful places um, in the world, one of the best places that I've ever been. Um, you know, friendly, friendliest people you'll ever meet. They're famous for onions and Kobe beef, which originates from their cows on that island. So um, just some really important information you should store away in your memory. But um, wonderful place, really nice people. Um, 
it was the hardest year of my life for, for multiple reasons. Um, but one of the main contributing factors to my loneliness was the fact that in the city of Sumoto, and that's kind of like the downtown area, if you will, there's only one church. Um, and it's on the other side of this mountain that we're on. So I only had a bike, so I, I couldn't get there. Um, so I never got to really go to church only a few times when I'd visit the big cities. And that really contributed just to a lot of spiritual and social loneliness for me. But um, it was so great to, to be with you uh, at, the, at the castle. So we, we're, we're about 2,000 feet up, and we could hear the children on the playground um, laughing and playing, um, and we can actually hear all that. And what really, um, you know, what really broke our hearts, we had an opportunity as we looked over the city to pray for the city, uh, but what really broke our hearts was the fact that there wasn't even a church in that vicinity right there, not one single church, which, which means that the 45,000 people who are, that you're looking down upon don't even have access to the gospel of Jesus Christ. No, one, no church, no one there, no pastor, no one there to, to go around and share, no, no one in the schools, no Christians in the schools, likely. I mean, there's very, it's possible always, but, but very unlikely that there, is even, there are even a handful of Christians there. And uh, when we got to the top, I took a picture of Matt and the castles. Here's, a, here's that photo right here. There it is. And, uh, you know, it's, again, it was erected, I think it's quite a fortress, uh, not one of the bigger castles there. But when I took the photo, I, you know, I started to look at it, and I started looking at the castle, and I'm just really admiring the beauty of it. And I didn't notice at first what adorned the top of the castle, the roof of the castle. And so here's a close-up of this same shot, but here's a close-up of the roof, and I don't know if you can see it. Now, if that's not good enough, let me just close in a little bit more, and there it is. Um, so this, the, the, the castle roof is adorned by these um, sculptures, which are basically demons. It's got horns, um, they look very, the, the eyes look very sinister. They look, I mean, the Japanese may not call them demons. I'm, demons, I'm not sure what they call them, but uh, it doesn't look like an angel, that's for sure. And so I counted at least a dozen of them, and they were really all around the, the roof. I mean, every single part of it, there were these, these demons. And when I thought about that, and I pointed this out to Matt, and we were like both, he had seen it before but had not noticed it. Uh, we were just taken aback and I just thought the symbolism of this was, uh, was stunning. It was staggering to think that here, um, on, on the very, perhaps the highest peak of the island, was this castle, which jutted out of that mountaintop. And here were these demonic figures. And I think it was, the symbolism was stark in that this is who, uh, this is what has taken this city and the entire nation captive. The demons have taken control of this entire land. I mean, and it reminded me of a verse, John 12, 31. I'll put this one up here for you. Now is the judgment of this world, Jesus said. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And Jesus is speaking of the future, but he said the ruler of this world was going to be cast out. The ruler of this world is a reference to Satan. And see, the scriptures clearly say that the, that the devil is the ruler of this world. He is the God of this age. And we saw his fingerprints all over Japan. Uh, we saw it here on that castle. We saw it other places. Tell us, t t tell them about your encounter with uh, with an evil one. Um, our first night that we were there. Sure. So we we land and um, a little bit out of it in jet lag. We dropped our stuff off at the hotel, went to go look for something to eat, which of course is very important to me. And so we're out there searching around, and we we go to this train station where there's typically a lot of restaurants that are still open, and we see this group of people. And Pastor Gary's like, I think those sound like worship songs. That just melodically sounds like a worship song. I'm like, dude, you need to get on the worship team, but that's a separate issue. But, <laughs> no, no, no. You, know, um, you know, they're singing these worship songs, and we start talking to them, and we learn that they're from Korea, and that they're ministering um, to the people in Japan, that they have a church nearby, and that they're singing these songs as an outreach to kind of get people to ask, what is this all about? And actually, a lot of people have been coming to faith just praying with them, um, attracting people to that place. So as we're talking, Pastor Gary whips out his phone. He shows them the happy video that this whole church took part in that kind of lip-dub music video. And he's showing this to them, and, and it's playing. They're like, wow, that's so cool. And I'm like, who is that guy with the hat? Oh, that's you. You know, I'd never seen that before. And they're playing the music, and this woman starts walking toward us. 
She just looks super angry. She's got this scowl on her face, and she's walking. And then she walks up to, to this woman, and she just kind of takes her arm out and, and hits her on the arm. What are the like, Christians? One of, two, one of the yeah. Christian uh, Korean yeah. uh, ladies that was there. And then she, you know, I was right there too. So she went after me, and she kind of hit me uh, in the arm and walked away, and, and they didn't seem to notice. So I was just kind of like, did that just happen? And, and they're still watching the video. And we went back to the hotel later, and I was asking Pastor Gary, like, did you notice that woman who walked by? And he's saying, like, no, I, we were just watching the video. And I said, you know, I think, you know, after she hit me, she kind of, she walked away, and she muttered a word that I don't want to repeat in Japanese. And, and I'm pretty sure that was demonic, because I've actually, when I've been leading worship, I've had... Um, demon manifestations before and there's a distinct look and there's a distinct tone that you can hear with your ears and you can feel it in your soul that something's just not quite right and it feels evil Mm. and so you know from that first day we were talking and and we both felt like as scary as that is you know um, the devil knows that we're here and I'm actually great thought right a great thought just wanted to encourage him on day (laughs) one Um, and but in the sense that I was encouraged that we clearly had a mission that the devil didn't want us carrying out. Otherwise, he, he need not draw attention to himself or draw attention to the fact that there are spiritual forces at work in Japan. Um, and it showed us that really we had that mission that was started day one with the opposition of the enemy. We saw it throughout the trip. We're going, uh, we went to Fukui Prefecture to visit his cousin. Great guy, super funny. Took us to this restaurant where the fish was still moving as I was eating. That was kind of freaky for me. Um, don't need to repeat that again in my life, although you took a video and sent it to me. But, um, you know, great experiences with his cousin. But one of the places he took us to was this wooden shrine. And it was beautiful, built in the year 714. We have a picture of it right there. And it's just completely gorgeous, surrounded by all this nature. We go inside the temple. And there's this, um, there's this man who kind of works at the temple grounds, and he's there to explain what all the different figures outside and inside the temple mean. We're kneeling, um, you know, just as a posture of listening to this man who's also kneeling. And we notice that there's these huge statues um, that looked pretty similar to the statues right. on the castle, which I had never noticed those figures on the castle before, but they're just huge. And I was like, wow, those look really scary. <laughs> and... I don't like that I'm like on the ground right now and, and Pastor Gary, is this man is explaining things in Japanese, Pastor Gary leans into me and goes, Matt, put on the full armor of God. And you know, his cousin is over here and he's like, hey, you know, hey. And, and, we're, and I'm just feeling more and more oppressed as we're there. And something I would point out is, you know, and for, I know a lot of you have spent time in Japan, um, there's, a, there's a true palpable feeling of darkness that I think Christians feel when they enter Japan, especially if we hadn't grown up in Japan. Um, and it's representative of the fact that I, I see these, these religions like Buddhism and Shintoism that are ingrained and intertwined inseparably with the culture. Even phrases in Japanese come out of those religions that are still used today, and they're just inseparable. And that darkness is, is apparent to us when we see these literal statues of religious worship. In the United States, we have just as much darkness, but I think a lot of us um, number one, it takes different forms. Um, it's a little more soci- um, socially acceptable to have those idols of career and of money and fame and, and wealth. Um, and in Japan, those exist, but there are also these physical, literal idols of worship that kind of you can, you can kind of sense some of that darkness from. And so that there's darkness in both places, but we can see it in a way that's different because we hadn't grown up there. Um, you know, for me... I'm on the ground in that temple, and he's saying, put on the full armor of God. I, the only thing I could think to do was to pray with all of my heart. My, my literal prayer was, Holy Spirit, please fill our hearts with your presence. Please fill this temple with your presence. Fill this entire space. We need you, Lord. Convict us of our need for you. Convict these people of their sin. And we're just crying out for the Holy Spirit to convict. Yeah. So deceiving because uh, you go to these grounds uh, and, and they're just immaculate and it's absolutely beautiful. I mean, everything is very lush, everything is very green, and then to see this statue, it's very beautiful, but it's so deceiving because it's also very sinister. It's very 
evil. And it's interesting, uh, it's interesting note, uh, this temple, uh, which is built 12, 1300 years ago, was actually located in the city of Obama in Japan. So it's, we, pr we might pronounce it Obama, but uh, and it's spelled exactly the same as our former president, but it's Obama, Japan, and that's where this was located at. Uh, speaking of the Holy Spirit, John chapter 16, I want you to take a look at this. Uh, Jesus said this about the Holy Spirit. And again, this is uh, on, your, on your notes. Starting verse 7, he said, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. Now, we kind of covered this. We said that the Holy Spirit would be sent to us. Jesus promised to send us the Holy Spirit uh, when, he was, uh, when he ascended to heaven. In verse 8, and here's the key. When he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. So will you take a pen and underline, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. That's what the Holy Spirit will do. That's one of the things that he's going to do. He's going to convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. You know, if you spoke to an average Japanese person today about sin, they won't understand what you're talking about because their, their understanding of sin is completely different from ours. For example, the word for sin in Japanese is the word tsumi. But the word tsumi is also the word for, their word for crime. So if you said to them, you're a sinner, you have tsumi, they're going to interpret that and say, well, I'm, you're saying I'm a criminal. I'm not a criminal. What are you talking about? And so that doesn't compute with them. And so their understanding is completely different. And in Japanese, the other, the other thing is that the Japanese consider human beings as basically good. So there's not this idea that you need to be convicted of righteousness, that we fall short of God's righteousness, because they think, hey, we're, we're good. We are righteous. We're, we're good people. And they really are. The Japanese are really good people. I mean, if you were on a train and you left your wallet, you, you, you dropped your wallet and left it on the train, if you, could find your, if you can find that same train that you left your, that wallet on later in the, in the day, probably that, that wallet will still be there with all the money in it. It will just be there because they will not steal. They will not take something that doesn't belong to them. It'll be there unless some American came by and saw it and took it for himself, right? So they're basically good. And, and if, when you're basically good, there's no need for this sense of universal redemption. There's no need for, to worry about judgment because they're good. But Jesus said the Holy Spirit was coming to convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. And that word convict there, if you take a look at it, is derived from the Greek word elenko, which means to convict someone or to convince someone of the truth or to reprove or to expose. You expose someone. That is what it means to convict or to uh, convince someone of the truth. The website gotquestions.org described the convicting work of the Holy Spirit this way. It says this. I put it up here for you. The Holy Spirit acts as a prosecuting attorney who exposes evil, reproves evildoers, and convinces people that they need a Savior. That's what the Holy Spirit does. He convinces he reproves, he exposes that, he, that you might see your sin and that you might you know, understand that you need a Savior. We saw the convicting work of the Holy Spirit in a young man named Joseph when Potiphar's wife tried to seduce him. Remember his response, Genesis 39, 9. Let's we'll put it up here for you. He said, how then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? You see, it was the work of the Holy Spirit that convicted him and convinced him that he could not succumb, that he should not succumb to the advances of Potiphar's wife. We saw the convicting work of the Holy Spirit again when David, when David responded and how he responded after he had an affair with Bathsheba. He lamented in Psalm 51 verse 4, put it up here for you, against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. I mean, he was so convicted by the Holy Spirit, came under conviction of the Holy Spirit after he committed this sin that he proclaimed, God, against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in this sight. And I remember when I first heard about Jesus Christ, when I heard that he had died on a cross for my sins and that he uh, took my penalty, I recognized the Bible says that Romans 3.23 says that we've all sinned, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. When I, when I read that for the very first time, I, I was convicted by the Holy Spirit and I knew immediately that I was a sinner. I recognized immediately that I was a sinner. And I wasn't a bad sinner. I was maybe a garden variety sinner. Uh, I mean, I, I wasn't a party animal. I wasn't uh, taking drugs. I wasn't a gang member. I wasn't cheating on tests at school. I was a pretty obedient son. But I knew that I was a sinner because I was selfish. And that was because of the convicting work of the Holy Spirit. I was convinced, yeah, I'm a sinner. I need a Savior. 
The Holy Spirit convicts the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. That's your first point. You can write that down. The Holy Spirit convicts us. He convicts me. You know, we look at, when I look at Japan, it is as if the Holy Spirit is not even present. It's as if the Holy Spirit is absent, that he's not even there because there isn't this deep, abiding sense of sin among the people. And of course, some people have been convicted of sin. The Holy Spirit is not completely absent. I mean, the Holy Spirit is present there, but not in the way that he's present here. Out of 127 million Japanese, think about this, out of 127 million Japanese, maybe about 500,000 of them are Bible-believing Christians. 500,000 out of 127 million people. There isn't this deep, abiding sense of sin among the people. That's why I say the Holy Spirit seems absent there. And there isn't this hunger and this thirst for righteousness. Uh, that, and there isn't this sense that one day they will give an account of themselves to God, therefore they need to turn to a Savior. And I believe the reason why they have these sentiments is because the God of this age, the God of this age, the devil, has blinded the minds of unbelievers. One pastor we met in Matsumoto, Japan, told us that he had been ministering for 30 years. And in 30 years, he had baptized only 13 people. And he was heartbroken that that was the fruit of his ministry, only 13 people in 30 years. And it just reminded us that Satan has a stranglehold on this land. He has, a, he has it in its grips. And it, and it begs the question, what do we do? How can Japan be set free from this bondage? Well, that reminds me of the next verse, 2 Corinthians 10, verse 4, if you want to take a look at it. The Apostle Paul said this, For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. Take a look at it again. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We have been given weapons. We have weapons. Will you circle the word weapons? God has given us weapons. Notice it's plural, not singular. We have more than one weapon, not just one, but multiple weapons. Not human weapons, not guns and bullets. But we have weapons that, that have the divine power to destroy strongholds. And that's what, Jap, well, that's what Japan needs. It needs weapons that can destroy strongholds. Weapons that have divine power. I don't know if you remember when the Jews entered the promised land. They entered, in the, entered the land of Canaan. The land of Canaan was a stronghold of idolatry. And the first city that the Jews came upon was Jericho. And Jericho was surrounded by a wall. It was a fortress. It was impenetrable. And do you remember what the Jews did? They didn't attack the wall. They didn't, throw, they didn't bomb the wall. They didn't try to knock the wall down. What they did was they marched around the wall seven times in seven days with the Ark of the Covenant and by shouting to the Lord. And on the seventh day, the wall fell down. And I read that story, and I thought, I told Matt yesterday, he says, you know what we had to do? We had to take a bunch of people to Japan. And we don't have an Ark of the Covenant, but we have the Word of God. We have the Word of the, the Lord, which is the sword of the Spirit. We had to march around this. We had to go to a high school in Japan. We had to march around that high school seven times in seven days. And we had to go to a, another college. We had to march around that college seven times in seven days. And we had to, we had to go to a city. If we can march around a, the city of Osaka, we had to march around Awaji and uh, Sumoto Island on Awaji. We had to march around it seven times in seven days and see what God does because nothing else seems to be working. You know, the, we don't have the power to dismantle the cultural and religious strongholds of Japan, but we have the weapons. We have the weapons that have the divine power to do so, and that first weapon is prayer. We were convicted of the need to pray and pray and pray and pray and pray more than we've ever had, and I believe that, that prayer is one of the keys to reaching Japan. We must plead with God to intervene. We must beg the Holy Spirit to do what he came to do, and that's to convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. And the second weapon that has the divine power to destroy strongholds is the truth, the truth of the Word of God. We have in our arsenal the truth of the Word of God. You know, in Japan, we saw Mormons, we saw Jehovah's Witnesses, just like they are today. Mormons wear their white shirts with their black ties, and, and the Jehovah's Witnesses are standing there with their, with their magazines on, on, at, the, at the train station, wherever. They were everywhere we went. They even have the Bible, but they've twisted it, and they've added to it, and I suppose they want to save Japan. But you can't save Japan with something that's not true. You can't save Japan with lies. You've got to save Japan with the truth, and we have the truth of the Word of God. And we need to take the truth. We need to proclaim the truth. 
We need to preach the gospel to the, to the people of Japan. And here's the thing. Here's the problem. Most Japanese don't even have access to the gospel. Most people don't even have access to the truth of the word of God because like in that city of Samota, 45,000 people, there, there isn't one church in that immediate area where they can come to hear the truth. We heard that while we were there, we heard that 80% of the pastors in Japan are 60 years old or, 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 or older and that the average church in Japan is about 10 to 15 to 20 people. You know, another city, you know, by the way, these, these pastors, um, in the next 20 to 30 years, they'll all be dead. They'll all be gone. And because the churches are so small, they don't, they, there aren't any young people coming to churches. There aren't any youth pastors because there's no need because there aren't any youth coming to the church. And so they don't have successors. So when these pastors die, the church dies. And those 10 or 12 people that had a church don't have a church any longer. So we met a couple, a husband and a wife, and they said the churches in our neighborhood are dying. And so the husband said, well, I'll take that church over there. And the wife said, I'll take that church over there. They're just trying to keep the churches from dying and closing their doors. That's how dire the situation is there. But another place we went to was the city of Kawasaki, which is a suburb of Tokyo. And when we, were t we were taken there by a, a missionary named, named Kevin Laverman. And Kevin took us to the mall. There was a mall right in the middle of this city. And he took us, we went inside the mall, parked the car. We, we took the elevator all the way up to the top. And there we were on the top of this mall. We were on the roof of the mall. And, the, and they turned the roof into a park, a beautiful park, playground, lots of mothers with their children playing there. And we stood on the roof of this, this mall, which was a park. And we looked around us. And completely around us were all these condominium high-rises. Some of them were just being built. Kevin told us, take a look at this picture. Kevin told us that they are building these condominium uh, high-rises all around Kawasaki in that immediate vicinity. And he says, thousands of families are moving into Kawasaki. They're moving out of Tokyo and they're moving to Kawasaki. It's very easily accessible by train. And in fact, Kevin told us that by the year 2020, in two years, there will be 60,000 people living within about a five-block radius of where we were standing. If you take a look at this map here, you see all those towers. They're all just going up, all in that same area. And there will be 60,000 people by, by the year 2020, 60,000 people living there and not one church, not one Bible-believing church to reach those 60,000 people. They have no access to the gospel. There's no way those children are going to know Christ. There's no way those mothers and those fathers are going to know Christ because there's no church there. He told us there wasn't one church there. You see, strongholds like that will never be torn down unless there are churches there, unless the truth is proclaimed, the word, truth of the word of God is proclaimed, unless the gospel is preached. It's not going to happen. And that's why Paul said in Romans 10, verse 14 and 15, take a look at that. He said, how then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have not heard? How are those people in Kawasaki ever going to hear? How, how are they going to ever believe? And it says here at the end of verse 14, and how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? I mean, how are they going to ever hear the gospel? How are they ever going to hear the truth of the word of God unless someone goes and preaches the word of God to them? How are they going to ever hear the gospel unless someone goes to preach the gospel to them? They're not. And that's why we came back with this conviction that we need to send. We need to go. We need to send more people. The church is not a place we ought to go to. A church is not a place we ought to go from and into the world. And here's the thing. Your heart may not be for Japan. That's okay. My heart happens to be for Japan. It wasn't always for Japan. It was only about the last five years that God put Japan on my heart. Your heart may be for a country in Africa. Your heart may be for a country in South America. Your heart may be for a country in Europe. That's good. Whatever God has played on your heart, whoever those people are, you ought to go. And you ought to pray for them. And we ought to figure out how we can send mission teams there. I would, send, I would send, be willing to send a mission team wherever our people want to go. You know, some say the strategy ought to be to send mission teams to just one location. Well, I believe that as God lays it on our hearts to go, I'm willing to send people wherever God would have us go because, because there's such a, such a great need for people to hear the gospel and the truth of the word of God. You know, the, the verse, you know, every day Matt and I, would, we read the Bible together. We do devotions and, and we prayed. And, for, you know, we, when we were up on that mountain, we prayed for the city of Sumoto. We would be on a train 
and we see all these people, they're all on their cell phones, and there's this vacant, empty look on their faces. Some of the people we looked at, I would point them out to Matt, and he'd point them out to me. Some of the people look so depressed. They look so sad. And uh, we, would, we, we would actually take a moment to pray for them. Let's, let's pray for that person over there. Let's pray for that guy over there. Let's pray for that lady over there. And we'd pray for them. And then I, I, I said to Matt, I said, I bet, I bet we're the only people that have ever prayed for them in the name of Jesus. I bet we're the only ones who have ever prayed for them in the name of Jesus because there's so few Christians there. And with so few Christians, people aren't being prayed for. Well, we prayed for them and asked God to stir in their hearts. But one of the verses that really spoke to us, I don't know, was about a third of the way into the trip, just kind of hit us like a two-by-four in the head, was Hebrews 12, 15. It's on your sheet. It's not Hebrews 12, 5. I think there's a typo there, but it's Hebrews 12, 15. And it says this, See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. And everywhere we went, we would see masses of people and God kept speaking to us, see to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. And we see more people here, see to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. We see more people here, see to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. He kept saying that to us over and over and over again. I know you have some thoughts about this verse. Yeah, I mean, it was discouraging, and it is discouraging to see the figures, um, just how few believers there are in Japan, and those are, those are real things. Those are, there are practical realities to why the gospel has not spread in Japan. But as we read this verse, see to it that no one should fail to obtain the grace of God. I, I saw this verse, we saw this verse by the grace of God, lived out and, and enacted in every missionary and every pastor that we met, that we met with. We went probably about over a thousand miles the entire time within the two-week span. And each pastor and each church was different. They all had different, they all had the overarching goal of seeing to it that no one would fail to obtain the grace of God, but their approach to ministry, their practical approaches, and the, the target groups that they were trying to reach were all different. Um, the first church that we visited was in uh, Matsumoto. There are a few different churches that we visited, and they had a really strong um, ministry for young families. And so we were seeing the flourishing ministry of specifically reaching young families. We went to another, uh, met with another couple and they're uh, in Kolbe and they uh, have a strong ministry with young adults and um, their musical worship is strong. And we went to another church where Pastor Gary got to, to preach and we got to serve at a little bit. And um, their youth ministry, their children's ministry, their musical worship was just passionate and vibrant. And it brought me to tears because I had just never seen that kind of passion in worship in Japan in my time there. And, you know, I have definitely not spent nearly as much time as many other people I know who have, who have lived there for many years, but long enough, I would say, to, to witness the spiritual reality of darkness in Japan. Um, and for me to see Japanese people at that church pouring out their hearts, their, their spirits, they were praying out loud all at once, as the music was playing behind them. They were lifting up worship, not caring about what other people thought because I can tell you that's not normal in Japanese culture for the most part, as far as I'm aware, to be sticking out quite that much. And they had this passion for worship that culture, culture comes secondary to our faith, to the culture of Christ. And I saw my heart just lifted up as we were worshiping with them. And that's why I could have faith that there are people seeing to it that no one would fail to obtain the grace of God. Going to, they're, they're all in different locations in Japan. Many of them don't even know each other. They all have the same mission. They're reaching different demographics of people. And I see them living out 1 Corinthians 9, that, they would become, that we would all become all things to all people, that we might save some, that our ministries shouldn't all look the same, that these demographics are different, and so these churches are reaching people that the other church would never be able to reach, and they're fulfilling these verses. I see that happening in our own church. I mean, just this summer, we are sending three different teams to three different locations, doing three different ministries. We have one team going to Hokkaido, and they're doing an English ministry. We're sending another team to Kawasaki to do three back-to-back VBSs. That's going to be tiring. Praise God for that team. They're sending another team to Chiba and ministering to college students. 
different people, different demographics, becoming all things to all people that some might be saved, but they're all living out this verse of seeing to it that no one would fail to obtain the grace of God. And I am invigorated. I am encouraged and inspired that this church is coming alongside those missionaries and those pastors. Because, you know, you look at that image of those demons perched up on that castle. And that, to me, is a complete image of doubt and fear. It is. It's, cause, it's, it's a microcosmic example of what has happened in Japan spiritually. It's an image of doubt. But when we were at that church, and they're praying, and they're worshiping, to me, that was the image of hope that I needed to believe that although it looks dark and it looks impossible, it seems like nothing could ever be done, that there is fruit, that there are people who are loyal to Christ and his cause in Japan. And by the grace of God, God has chosen this church and many of you who are going to Japan this summer to be part of his mission as a privilege that God doesn't need us to spread his gospel. He has chosen to use this church to send imperfect people to make his glory known to the ends of the earth. I am encouraged in spite of the real realities of spiritual darkness, I am encouraged mm. that the Holy Spirit is using this church not for us, but for his glory and his glory alone. Amen. That's, that's so good. We, we want so much for everyone to obtain the grace of God. We don't want anyone to fail to obtain the grace of God. People right here in this room today, maybe you have never received the grace of God. There is nothing greater in the world than to receive the grace of God than to know that even though you, you fall short of God's glory, that you're a sinner, that God loves you and he forgives you and he welcomes you into his home and he, he wants to live in your heart. There's nothing greater than that in the whole wide world. And we want more and more people. We want to send more teams to Japan. I want to send 100 people to Japan every year or 200 people to Japan every year and not just Japan, but Uganda, Africa, wherever God would lead us. We want to send more people out every single year. And I hope that you will consider going on a mission trip, if not this year, next year, or the year after that. Is, is, think about that. Now, this last, uh, this last church that, that Matt was referring to that we went to in Machida, Japan, I had an opportunity to preach there, and Matt ha had an opportunity to lead worship there. And it was one of the things that really, I'm glad it came at the end of the trip, because it really gave us a sense of hope that there is, there is hope for Japan. And I just want to, I just want, he, he led the, the song Amazing Grace, My Chains Are Gone. They, they even knew it. They sang with him in English and Japanese, but I want you to just get a flavor of what was going on as Matt led that song. Take a look at this video. Just a short video. just brought tears uh, to my eyes, thinking that there is hope, right? There is hope to take amazing grace to Japan. God loves them just as he loves us. Now, let me finish off the message with a couple of other thoughts. One of the most popular verses in the Bible is Romans 8.28. You may be familiar with it, Romans 8.28. And we know, for those who love God, all things work together for good. 
for those who are called according to his purpose. Uh, Pastor Greg said, told me that this is his favorite verse. And I, and I, and I want to ask you a question. Have you ever wondered why it is that all things work together for good to those who love God and are called according to his purpose? Why is that? Why is it that all things work together for good? Well, the reason why all things work together for good is because of the work of the Holy Spirit. But this verse doesn't tell you that. You, you can't get, get that, that this is the work of the Holy Spirit by just reading verse 28. In order to know, understand that the Holy Spirit is the reason why all things work together for good, you've got to read verse 26 and verse 27. So let's read verse 26 and 27. And it says this, Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray as we ought, but the Spirit himself, the Holy Spirit himself, intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. This passage blows my mind. It ought to blow your mind. Let me try to unpack it for you. In verse 26, underline the Spirit himself intercedes for us. All right, the Holy Spirit intercedes for us. And then in verse 27, underline at the end of the verse 27, underline according to the will of God. He intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. In a nutshell, here's what this verse is telling us. And you can write this one down. The Holy Spirit prays for me. The Holy Spirit prays for us. That's what it's saying. The Holy Spirit prays for us. Did you know that the Holy Spirit is praying for you? The Holy Spirit prays for you. The Holy Spirit prays to help our weaknesses. I mean, we are weak, right? We are weak. I am weak. I'm, a, I'm weak because I'm a sinner. And, how, and, and sometimes when we're weak, because we're human, because we're flesh, we don't know how to pray. There are plenty of times people ask me to pray. You know, will you pray for this? Sometimes I don't know what to pray or how to pray for somebody. But did you know that the Holy Spirit prays for us? This is crazy. Here's how Pastor John MacArthur summarized it. Put it up here for you. He said, we are so sinful, so fallen, so stained by sin. Sin is so endemic to us. It's so much into the fabric of our beings that we, we bear two heavy burdens. We bear the burden of sin and the burden of suffering. And both of those were supported, we're supported by the Holy Spirit. Under the burden of suffering, he is our comforter. Under the burden of sin, he is our intercessor. He deals with the whole scope of our weakness. It's not just weakness in the style of our prayers or the frequency of our prayers or the manner of our prayers. It's weakness in our very nature that limits the expression of prayer. We don't even know how to pray, is what he's saying. And it's weakness in the content of prayer. God answers prayers, but we just don't know how to pray. We don't know how to pray. He says, as we should. Why? Because we can't see the future, because we can't understand the present, because we don't know what's good for us. But the Holy Spirit knows all those things. He knows the future. He knows the present. He knows everything about us. He knows the situation. And therefore, He intercedes for us, and He prays for us. He prays for you. And it says in verse 26, he prays with groanings too deep for words. You might want to underline that, with groanings too deep for words. Now, let me just say something here. There are some who are part of the charismatic movement who, who, who make the argument or try to make the case that this phrase here, groanings too deep for words, is about speaking in tongues. Right? I want you to know something. This has nothing to do with speaking in tongues. And the reason we know that it has nothing to do with speaking in tongues is because of the context. First of all, first context is this. Paul says nothing about speaking in tongues in the entire book of Romans. Not one, one mention of speaking in tongues in the entire book of Romans, let alone, the, let alone chapter 8. No mention of tongues. All right, second context. If you, look at the, if you look at four verses above this, starting in verse 22, take a look at this. Let me read it to you. Here's what it says. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together. There it is again. For the whole... We know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves. We ourselves, who have been the first fruits of the, of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we await, or as we wait eagerly for, for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. So what is this telling us? Context again, right? The reason why we know this has nothing to do with the Holy Spirit, because it tells us here that creation itself groans. The creation groans. Creation doesn't speak in tongues has nothing to do with tongues. The creation groans, and it says in verse 23 that we also groan. Now, what does that mean exactly? The word groan is the Greek word stenazo, and it means to sigh because of a heavy pressure, because of a heavy weight. So maybe you've, I know I sigh from time to time, and sigh, oh, 
you know, because of something going on in your life, a heavy pressure that is placed on your life. And the groaning in, this, in the scriptures here is inaudible. You can't hear it. The Holy Spirit groans and, and, the, and the creation groans. It is inaudible. It's too deep for words. But the creation groans because of the curse of sin. And we see that in verse 21 and 28, which I don't, 20 and 21, which I did not, did not list for you there, but you can take a look at it in your Bible. It says the creation is subjected to futility. And the hope is that one day the creation will be set free from the bondage to corruption, the bondage to sin. And so creation grows because of the groans, because of the curse of sin, because of the weight, the unbearable weight of sin. And we groan as well. We groan because of our own sin. I know I groan because of my own sin. And I, I can't tell you, I can't wait. I can't wait for the Holy Spirit to take me home one day and be with Jesus. I can't wait to be with Jesus where I will be set free from the body of this sin. And I don't know if you've ever thought of that, like, God, take me home. I want to be with you. I want to be out of this body and in your presence. And so the Holy Spirit intercedes for you with groanings too deep for words. You can't even hear it. Helping you in your weaknesses. And here's the key, verse 27. Interceding for the saints according to the will of God. He intercedes for us according to the will of God. You know, when we pray, we want to pray that God will make things better. When we pray, we want to ask God to take away our pain. When we pray, we ask God to meet our needs. When we pray, we ask God to take away our problems, make, our, make all our problems disappear. But when the Holy Spirit prays for us, He prays that God's will will be done in your life. That's what He prays. He prays for God's will to be done in your life. And it's so comforting. To know that the Holy Spirit prays for God's will in our lives because that's what we want. We want God's will for our lives no matter what it is we, we come across. And it's comforting to know that Holy Spirit prays for us because sometimes life just goes sideways. Life doesn't happen the way we want it to happen. Sometimes relationships don't work out. Sometimes we, we're let go from our jobs or sometimes we're blindsided by the doctor or sometimes we find ourselves, we find ourselves at the end of our rope but when, the, when we're at the end of our rope, we don't even know how to pray. And that's why it's so good to know that the Holy Spirit prays for us according to the will of God. And that's the reason, church, that's the reason why all things work together for good to those who love God and who are called according to His purpose. Because the Holy Spirit is praying for you. Can I get an amen for that? Right? What a great truth. Everything works together for good in your life because the Holy Spirit is praying for you. I would want the Holy Spirit praying for me more than I want you to be praying for me. But please pray for me, right? We want the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit is praying for you. Now, I love watches. I forgot to wear mine this morning, but I love watches. The most beautiful watch, the most beautiful watch I've ever owned was a Rolex, which was given to me by the chairman. It looked just like this. It was given to us, given to me by the chairman of our elder board, Rod Sugiyama. Bless that man's heart, right? And he did not use church funds. He bought it with his own money, got me a Rolex watch, Gave it to me some years back. He bought it when he was in China for $10. $10. What a cheapskate. Now, if Rod didn't tell me that it was fake, I would have found out a week later because that's when it stopped working. It lasted only a week. One week. A Timex ticks longer than that. Ten. One, seven days and this beautiful watch stopped working and it would never work again. So I threw it away. That's right. Otherwise, I would have showed it to you. And I found out later on that there's a way to, to spot a fake Rolex. And that's to check the serial and model number stamping on the back. Here's what it kind of looks like. So this is kind of the seal. You know, this is kind of how you know the, the difference between a fake and a real. The real a real Rolex, the, the serial and model numbers are etched and marked in this solid fine line with these solid fine lines that kind of glows in the light at an angle. The, ro the cheap Rolex or the fake Rolex, the, the etchings are very, very faint and they're very dull. So this is basically the seal of a Rolex. You, this is how you know the real deal. And of course, the, the Rolex, the, the ones that make the fake Rolexes kind of are onto this now, so they're probably making them a little bit better as well. But uh, I don't, you know, a few years ago, I didn't know this, but a few years ago, uh, my family was given a seal. My dad was given a seal of the family. I didn't know we had a, we had a seal. And this is what it looks like right here. And this is the, the Shiohama seal. So the character in the circle, there are two characters there. The, the top character 
is the, is, the, is the kanji or the Japanese word for shio. Shio, it means salt. And the bottom one is uh, the ancient kanji, and it's uh, the word hama, which means uh, beach. So it's shiohama. Now, in Japan, again, I didn't know this until just recently, but in Japan, your seal, the seal of your last name, is affixed to documents, and it's as good as the, it carries the weight of your signature. It's as good as gold. So whenever you sign a document, for example, you're going to buy a car, you're going to buy a house, you're going to fill out an application to go to school, you just, all you do is affix your seal. You just put your seal on there, your stamp on there, and it's as good as your signature. You know, you need a signature. This is all you need in Japan, and you can, you can actually go to Japan. You, I think you can go to Daiso and look for your name, and they've got, they've got all these things there, and, you can, and that's as good, as good as gold. Well, in Ephesians chapter 3, the apostle Paul took the concept of the seal and applied it to, to Christ followers, and here's what he said, Ephesians 1, 13 and 14. He wrote, In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Okay, one more time. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Paul said that all believers in Christ are sealed with the Holy Spirit. You can write that one down. We are sealed with the Holy Spirit. And here's what that means. It means that you're the real deal. It means that you're a child of God. It means that you belong to God. You can write that one down. Being sealed with the Holy Spirit means that you belong to God. Romans 8, 9, Paul said, this is a very important verse. Romans 8, 9, Paul said, at the end of it, it says, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ, the Holy Spirit, does not belong to him. Right? Very important verse. If you don't have the Holy Spirit, you're not a child of God. If you don't have the Holy Spirit, you don't belong to him. If you don't have the Holy Spirit, you're not a Christ follower. That's what this is saying, right? So if you, but if you have the Holy Spirit, conversely, if you have the Holy Spirit, you're a child of God. You belong to him. That's what this is saying. Um, now, how do you receive the Holy Spirit? If you, if you want to be a, a child of God, how do you receive the Holy Spirit? Well, you do what Ephesians 3, 13 and 14 just says. You hear the word of truth. You hear the gospel. You hear the good news of Jesus Christ, and you, and you believe. You say, wow, I believe that. I believe Jesus was God's son. I believe that he died on the cross for my sins. I believe that he was raised from the dead. I believe. At the moment you believe, at that very precise moment you believe, he will come into your life, the Holy Spirit will come into your life, and you will be sealed by the Holy Spirit, and you will be his forever. And I love what Thomas Brooks wrote in his book, Heaven on Earth. This book was written in 1654, 364 years ago, I love what he wrote about belonging to God. Let me read it to you. Thomas Brooks wrote this 364 years ago. He said, Beloved in our dearest Lord, you are those worthies of whom this world is not worthy. You are the princes that prevail with God. You are those excellent ones in whom is all of Christ's delight. You are his glory. You are his picked, cold, prime instruments which he will use he will make use of to carry on his best and greatest work against his worst and greatest enemies in these latter days. I love how eloquent, I love the way he says that. You are the worthies of whom this world is not worthy. You are the princes that prevail with God. You are the excellent ones. You are his glory. You are his picked. You are his cold. You are his instruments. You belong to him. That's what the Holy Spirit does for us. You might remember when Daniel was thrown into the lion's den. King Darius, the king, sealed the den to make sure that no one could go in and to make sure that Daniel couldn't get out. Daniel 6, take a look at this, 16 and 17. Then the king commanded, and Daniel was brought and cast in the den of lions. And the king declared to Daniel, may your God, whom you serve continually, deliver you. And a stone was brought and laid on the mouth of the den, and the king sealed it with his own signet and with the signet of his lords, that nothing might be changed concerning Daniel. You see, the king was the highest authority in the land, and he sealed the den, and when he sealed the den, he made it secure so that no one could go in and no one could go out. When the Holy Spirit seals us, he makes us secure. He makes our salvation secure. You can write that one down. He makes your eternity, your future secure. He makes your place in heaven secure. He makes your position as a child of God secure. Here's what Jesus said about our security. John chapter 10, verse 27 through 29. 
Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one shall snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. You see, no one can take you away from God. Nothing can take you away from God. Nothing can separate you from the love of God no matter how fierce the opposition is, no matter what it is you're going through. Nothing can take you away from God. When you are in God's hand, when you are sealed by the Holy Spirit, you are secure in Him. You are His forever and ever and ever. And it's not just because God's hands are big. It's because the Holy Spirit has sealed you and made you secure so that nothing can, take, nothing can change that about you. Well, finally, take a look at Ephesians chapter 1, 14 again. You know, verse 13 says, we were sealed with a promised Holy Spirit. And verse 14 says, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it? You know, starting uh, again, the word guarantee, if you want to circle the word guarantee, it is the Greek word arabon, and it means down payment. That's a better translation, a better, a more accurate translation. He has given us, he, the Holy Spirit is our down payment, the down payment of our inheritance, not guarantee. He's the down payment of our inheritance. Now, let me explain it this way. As you may know, when you put your faith in, and trust in Christ, you're given the gift of eternal life. We, we give the gift of eternal life. That's our inheritance. We get to go to heaven one day. And the eternal life begins the moment you receive Christ into your heart, the moment you believe. We receive it right away. We begin to live it right away, but there's a sense in which we don't receive the full measure of our eternal life until we are in heaven. We don't receive the full measure. We don't receive the full blessing of our redemption until we're in God's presence after we have died and we've gone to heaven. So what we have now is just a foretaste of our future glory, but that future glory is coming and it is coming and it has been sealed by this down payment. So the Holy Spirit serves as a down payment for your eternal inheritance. And it's so important to know. That's why it's so important to know that you are sealed. You are, t you are secure. You belong to Christ. And so three things we learned today. The Holy Spirit convicts. The Holy Spirit prays for us. And the Holy Spirit seals us. And I think you would all agree that, that our lives would be dramatically different without the Holy Spirit. Where would we be without the Holy Spirit? If we didn't have the Holy Spirit living inside of us, and that basically means that God wouldn't be living inside of us. And I don't know about you, but I want God to live inside of me. I need God to live inside of me. I need the Holy Spirit to live inside of me. I can't get through a single day, a single minute without knowing that God is inside of me. So I'd ask you this question, what about you? Is the Holy Spirit living inside of you? Does God live inside of you? Well, if he does, then, then how good it is to know that you've been sealed. How good it is to know that he prays for you. How good it is to know that you belong to him. But if he doesn't, see to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. That's what I would say. Oh, I, I would beg you. Would you believe in the gospel? Would you believe that Jesus Christ died on a cross for your sins and was raised from the dead? If you would believe that today, if you would believe that today, the Holy Spirit will come into your heart and he will seal you. And he will make you his. And he will make you secure. And he will begin to pray for you according to God's will. And you will be his forever. Will you bow your heads and close your eyes? I, I would love, I, I want to just pray for you. And if, again, you're here today, and the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit of God does not live inside of you. And if you would like him to live inside of you, would you say to him today, dear God, I, I believe, I believe the gospel. I believe that Jesus was your son and that he died on a cross for my sins and that he was raised from the dead. I believe today I receive you into my heart. Fill my heart with your presence. Believe, I believe. If you would just tell him that right now, tell him that the Holy Spirit will come instantly and seal you and make you his and he will live inside of you as a down payment for your eternal reward, your eternal inheritance. Father, thank you for your Holy Spirit. Thank you that he is real and that he is God and he lives inside of us. Father, thank you for these truths 
And Father, for all of us who have the Holy Spirit living inside of us, I pray that you would help us continually to be sensitive to the leading of your Spirit, to the things that you would have us do and the things that you would have us say and the way that we would live our lives. And God, I pray that your Holy Spirit would stir inside in each and every one of us in such a way that that we would see to it that no one in our family and no one that we know and no one in our neighborhood and no one in our city, no one in our country and no one in, in Japan and no one in Africa and no one in Europe would fail to obtain the grace of God. Do a work in us, God. That we would be a place, not that we would, not that our church would be a place to go to, but I pray that our church would be a place that we would go from. Stir in us, God, that we would be willing to go wherever you would have us go. Right back to our schools today, right back to our works, right back to our homes. That nobody will fail to obtain the grace of God. Thank you for the grace of God. Thank you for your amazing grace. Thank you for your Holy Spirit. We love you, Lord. In Jesus' name.